0: I'm Joe Mangina, I teach systematic theology here at the College of Saint Joe, and I have known David Yeager a long time. In fact, I was thinking, David, we are now in the fourth decade of our that's true. Quite
1: that's my enduring
0: memory of David Yeager. When I arrived at um, at Yale through my doctorate in the eighties, David was a year or two ahead of me, and my enduring image. walking through the common room on my way to the refectory, there would be David with large volumes in Latin generally, Thomas Aquinas and Martin Luther and various sort of worthies in history, and David at that time in his life of a pipe, and I realized I'm, really, I'm very grateful that David has given up the pipe <laughs> for his sake, however that's really how a theologian <laughs> male or female. <laughs> uh, but David would sit there and you'd come, you'd come along and you'd strike up a conversation. How's the weather? How are things going? You'd leave half an hour later with 10 more items for your bibliography and a good deal of commentary and wisdom to go along with. And David modeled that kind of generosity already in graduate school and has continued to do so. First, at Lutheran Southern Seminary in Columbia, South Carolina, more recently at the North American Lutheran Seminary, which is a Lutheran seminary that exists within an Anglican seminary, our sister institution, Trinity School for Ministry in Ambridge, uh, Pennsylvania, right outside Pittsburgh. Um, David is the author of many scholarly works, uh, especially in the areas of uh, ecclesiology and humanism. He has served on the, am I right, David, the International Lutheran Roman Catholic as a
1: document, consultant, <laughs> yeah.
0: um, where he uh, worked together with the late and much loved Margaret O'Gara, who he taught here at St. Michael's mm-hmm. College at TST. Um, uh, David's authored many classic articles. The, the, one that jumps to mind is to the required reading of seminarians. It's called The New Testament and the Nicene Dogma, um, which makes a compelling argument that when we move from New Testament narratives and Proclamation in the Gospels and Epistles. From there to Nicaea, it's not a big job. It's a different way of articulating the common conviction that Jesus is Lord. And that conviction stands behind David's work, which Wicklow students probably know best in the form of a manuscript titled The Apostolic Faith: A Catholic and Evangelical Introduction to Christian Theology which we all fervently hope and pray <laughs> will see publication before the coming of God's name. <laughs> but that's only a reflection of how grateful we are for that book and what it has taught us. And we, we look forward to being further instructed today from Dr. David
1: Well, thank you all very much. It's a, a great honor and pleasure to be here. It's a little overwhelming to look at a room full of people who've read that book, um, um, and um, it is sort of strange, in fact, to be talking retrospectively about a book that I've never actually gotten published, but um, life is strange. Um, there has been some movement. I've got had some students doing um, copy editing, which is really all that's left, so there's hope. Um, The metaphor of journeying is seriously overused today, but the writing of that book, The Apostolic Faith, was a journey in more ways than one. Um, When I first taught a course entitled Introduction to Theology in 1988, um, having um, started with um, one paragraph of a dissertation written, and... um, uh, on a three-year term appointment filling in for Michael Root, who, in the event, didn't come back and uh, after his leave, um, though he did come back some years later. Um, at that time, I had behind me four years of dogmatic theology, systematic theology with Robert Jensen at Gettysburg, and then another four years of mostly historical and hermeneutical work at Yale. Um, I had no real clue how strenuous it would be to update and expand my understanding of Christian doctrine to the level appropriate for a, a teacher in the church. Um, and at the same time, work out an approach to doctrine that integrated what I had learned from Jensen, from George Lindbeck, from Hans Fry. Um, I went to Columbia um, um Foolishly confident that I had thought things through rather carefully, uh, when it's nine o'clock in the evening, knowing that at eight o'clock the next morning you would you will be telling twenty future pastors in the church what happened on the cross, you learn how shallow you really are, um, and the sense of panic that I couldn't go sign up for time on. Mr. Lindbeck's door. People were signing up on my office door for time. Is another part of that. Um, My lectures for that first theology class, which were written out rather fully because I was too green to lecture extemporaneously, were the remote origin of the apostolic faith. Eventually, I um, I just had it um, the, the lecture notes put into complete sentences mostly at that time, and distributed to the students and from that time on, it was rewritten in whole or in part for nearly the next 20 years, every year. Um, and everything I studied in, or pondered in that time somehow found its way into the successive versions of um, what, came, what at, um, maybe it is known that way here, but it, um, that seminary became known as Yego's TypeScript. Um The book is probably not as tightly unified as it might have been if I had first thought things through and then written the book. But it was a great advantage to me to have the constant challenge of bringing various lines of research and reflection together. Um, As the book came to be in a kind of piecemeal, cumulative way, it was only gradually and sometimes even only in retrospect that it became clear to me in certain respects what I was up to. Um, Despite its length, the apostolic faith is not a systematic theology, Um, and for that reason it does not position itself in relation to debates in academic theology and modern academic theology, methodological issues and so forth, except in deliberately broad and rudimentary ways. Um, I set forth, for example, you know what it means to be a modernist Protestant in a deliberately crude fashion and, and explain why I'm not. Um, so I thought it might be of some interest today to talk about the way in which the book represents a protracted and not always fully conscious even struggle on my part to escape the influence of a particular modern theological paradigm. The struggle took form most directly as I um, um, wrestled with my own Lutheran tradition, but I hope that the story is not narrow in that way. When I started at Yale, I bought a multi-volume set called The Sermons of Martin Luther from Christian Book Distributors. I believe you can still get them. Um, And as I read around in those volumes, I was bemused to notice that Luther was constantly violating the rules, the rules of ex-reformatorisch, authentically reformational proclamation, as those had been solemnly presented to me in many authoritative books, mostly German. And more and more I became convinced that the role played by Jesus Christ in Luther's preaching, was fundamentally different from the role he played in much modern theology that claimed aggressively to be following the pure Reformation line. That seemed, um, to say the least, disturbing, but initially I didn't know what to make of it. When I found myself a professor at a denominational seminary and thus embroiled in the internal debates of a mainline Lutheran denomination, particularly those debates over moral tr- teaching with which we are all too familiar, um, it seemed to me that those same aggressive theological claimants to, the Reforma- to Reformation radicalism had led Lutherans into a sort of perpetually barren and exhausting oscillation between legalism and antinomianism. Um, every attempt to remedy the one led directly to the other. I had an intuition that this problem was connected with that Christological discrepancy that I had noticed. Um, In the early 90s, I began to study Luther pretty intensively. Um, The unpublished book from that work um, um, is also now got a contract and um, an editor looking at it. Um, And at the same time, I immersed myself in the Greek fathers, particularly Cyril of Alexandria and Maximus the Confessor. Um, Luther seemed to me manifestly closer to those theologians um, with regard both to his formal Christology and to the role of Christ as Savior than he did to the 20th century theologians who most insistently claimed his legacy. Well, as I cast about to account for all this um, and found help in various places, I was eventually surprised to learn that I was wrestling with the legacy of a theologian who had hardly made an appearance in my theological education. I knew that Albrecht Ritschl, who lived from 1822 to 1889, was the teacher of important late 19th and early 20th century figures such as Wilhelm Hermann, Karl Hohl, and Adolf von Harnack. I could have connected his name with the historical Jesus. I had what turned out to be an extremely misleading notion that the dialectical theology of the 1920s had repudiated his legacy. And I could recall a quip of Hans Frey's about how boring Ritchell was to read. That turned out to be one of the few things I thought I knew about Ritchell that were true. (laughs) Um, Ritchell's importance lies less in the details of his own theology as in his construction of a sort of theological paradigm. A skeleton, you might say, which has been endlessly clad in endlessly various flesh by, over the last century and a half, often by theologians with very different interests and temperament from Ritchell. The Scottish theologian James Orr, who was one of the shrewdest early English-speaking expositors and critics of Ritchell, noted how Ritchell's students immediately went off to, in all sorts of different directions— diverse and mutually um, opposed directions in some cases. He suspected that that was the sign of an underlying incoherence in ritual's thought, and that may have been true, but it was also a sign of the versatility and attractiveness of the theological paradigm he created, or also noted how the young Ritual passed through and absorbed just about every school of German theology in the mid-19th century. He did the, the university tour thing that German students did, from the conservative pietists in Halle and Berlin to the radical Hegelians in Tubingen. He soaked it all up. And in some way, he seems to have penetrated to intellectual and spiritual aspirations that were driving all of that. And so he framed a very plausible um, response that created quite a stir, both in um, the academy but also in the church well i'm not going to make any attempt to summarize Rachel's thought as a whole in fact i'm leaving out important issues but i just want to point out three central features of this paradigm that he created the first was that Richard argued that what he called metaphysical statements had no proper place in theology now that metaphysical statements is a complex notion but we won't go far wrong by understanding them as essentially empirically unverifiable truth claims. That is to say, claims that could not be verified by the scientific method as it was understood in the 19th century. Um, Richel was in a broad sense a Kantian. He believed that we cannot have theoretical knowledge, knowledge about objects which transcend our senses, even though we cannot make sense of our moral experience without reference to non-empirical realities such as God, freedom, and immortality. So meaningful language about God had to take the form of statements about his significance for us. And what seemed to be non-empirical judgments of fact in Christianity had to be recast as value judgments, Um, Statements about the power exercised by Christian phenomena on our lives. Um, We can only know God in his effect on us. So that's the one piece of the paradigm. A kind of um, um, understanding of theology as really being about the impact on us of, um, uh, well, of what? Second point, um, as a Christian theologian, Richard did not think that it was sufficient to say that practical reason must just postulate God in order to get on with the moral life. Human beings, he thought, need a revelation for God, which does not mean a revelation of God. Not, that does not mean um, revealed truth. It's not propositional revelation. It meant that God must enter into our experience with transforming power. The revelation of God for ritual is the impact on us of the man Jesus of Nazareth. When we encounter this man through the portraiture in the Gospels, which historical research can now cleanse of legendary distractions, we encounter a transforming purity and love. Um, and love for God. Um, no, I read that wrong we encounter uh, god's transforming purity and love it's not and this is not mat- uh, primarily a matter of what jesus taught about god it's a matter of the eindruck the impact the direct impression of his human personality on us prior to words or ideas richel's very important student wilhelm hermann was a much less cluttered thinker than richel so it's sometimes easier to cite him things. uh, Hermann put it this way, the impression Jesus makes is of an inexhaustible moral purity and power that overcomes and stands um, triumphant over the world and judges it. This is not a conclusion of, it's not a conclusion of any reasoning, but an immediate certainty that in this purity and power we are up against the divine. Faced thus with Jesus, we become conscious of our own moral weakness and poverty. But at the same time, this Jesus is on our side. The very one whose purity calls us into question presents himself as our friend. Hermann writes, while he makes the sinner insecure by the simple power of his personal life, he gives him at the same time a support by his friendlichkeit, his friendliness. In that which he finds in the person of Jesus, it becomes certain to the Christian that the power of the good not only judges but redeems him. Thus is constituted Christian faith. What's important first to see here is that Jesus is Savior strictly as Revealer. Ritual and his school were Christocentric in their way. We have no access, no clear access to this forgiveness amidst judgment of God, except through the historical phenomenon of Jesus. But what's redemptive about Jesus is his transparency to the power of the good. And so the original, the early Richlands walked a fine line here. Much of their credibility rested on the claim to put Jesus at the center. But it turns out that Jesus as a particular person, language those of you who read the book may recognize, Jesus as a particular person was both all-important and yet, in a sense, unimportant. He was the unique locus of revelation. But he was still, in a sense, a means to an end. So the Richlands were complacent about criticism of the Gospels and even welcomed it because most of the particulars narrated in the gospel, in the Gospels were irrelevant to Jesus' saving significance as they understood it. In particular, that Jesus was a Jew born under the Torah was a terrible distraction and hindrance, except insofar as Judaism could be typecast as the embodiment of the power of guilt from which Jesus sets us free. So Richland scholars and scholars who accepted this paradigm were for a long time actively eager to deny that Jesus ever claimed to be the promised Messiah, that would have implicated him in a tangle of um, culturally conditioned complications and to most of these Germans distasteful complications that could only dilute the impact of his personality. Um, Still on the second point, the significance of this Christological paradigm can also be seen in another direction, in Ritchell's unremitting host- hostility to the notion of the believer's union with Christ. In fact, Richel wrote a polemical three-volume history of pietism in which union with Christ is presented as the root of all evil in post-Reformation Lutheranism, the poisonous remnant of Catholicism. Catholicism will say some of this stuff in German. Um, which crept in to corrupt the purity of Protestantism. And you can see that the idea of a present union of believers with a living Christ, a living active Christ, brings with it a whole bundle of metaphysical claims about resurrection and exaltation. Ritual was vague about resurrection. It would seem right that Jesus would be vindicated somehow. Negative about any notion of Christ's present agency. But it's also the case that ritual's whole conception of Christ's role as Savior renders a present union with Christ valueless. Jesus is Savior as Revealer. It is not, in the end, his concrete person, but the power which comes into our lives through his person, through the impact of his personality, which is important. There is nothing, as it were, Jesus' particular about that power. The movement of the sinful human being towards Jesus, then, is penultimate. The soteriologically decisive movement is the flow of power from Jesus to us, as his personality produces an impression, has an impact on our subjectivity. The third point is that these elements of Ritchell's theology and of contribute finally to a distinctive understanding of what salvation is. Ritchell's translation of theological truth claims into value judgments is certainly reminiscent of Schleiermacher's reduction of doctrinal statements to descriptions of religious feeling. But Ritchell's specific kind of Kantianism gave this a sort of distinctive twist. The goal of redemption is not the renewal and perfection of our God-consciousness by the Spirit of Jesus. The goal is rather that we are set free from guilt and discouragement for responsible freedom in the world. Richly in salvation is described as lordship over the world through trust in God's fatherly mercy experienced in the figure of Jesus. God acts upon us through his revelation in Jesus so that we may stand over against the world in freedom. But you notice, there's no reciprocity with God. There's no communion with God in that description. Salvation is about, we can use some language of later people of this paradigm, a way of being in the world. It's called faith. Faith. Richel's student, Hermann, did indeed write a book whose title in English is The Communion of the Christian with God, but that translation is misleading. The German word translated communion is not Gemeinschaft, but Verkehr, which is a more impersonal term. The title might better have been translated The Dealings of the Christian with God. If God can only be known in the inward effect of his action upon us, then towards us, God is always subject, never object, and so there can't be communion. There can't be reciprocity, between uh, mutuality between us and God. This was considered a striking novelty by contemporary observers, um, both in in Germany and um, in the English-speaking world. James Orr, for example, was just astonished at the notion, the very idea that religion would not have communion with God somehow as its goal. He thought this would prove to be the Achilles heel of ritualism, but he did not adequately reckon with the 20th century that he only saw of which he only saw the beginning and its secularized culture. So this concatenation of elements, theology as a discourse about the subjective impact of historical revelation. Christ as Savior by virtue of such impact. And salvation as the resulting transformation of our way of being in the world. This proved to be a very potent paradigm. In a form that preserved and transformed the social dimension of Ritual's thought, which I've just not mentioned, it came to this continent in the social gospel. Um, In Germany its most important transformation was accomplished by Wilhelm Hermann's student, Rudolf Bultmann. Now, the story I heard decades ago about 20th century theology was that Bultmann was a key figure in a post-World War I theological generation which repudiated the callow-optimistic liberalism of its teachers, especially the Richlands. I think that, in fact, Karl Barth, was the really possibly the only figure of the so-called dialectical theology of the 20s who actually changed the paradigm and Bonhoeffer after him and uh, next generation. Um, in the case of Bultmann, um, what I think is surprising is how little is new over against Richard and Hermann um, except for uh, um, um, Heideggerian terminology Bultmann's mythology is basically a historian's rendering of Ritschl's metaphysical statements. (laughs) And the idea of of, um, reinterpreting mythology as the expression of existential self-understanding is what a value judgment becomes after you read Heidegger. Bultmann's truly significant alteration of the paradigm concerned the locus of revelation. As a critical historian, Bultmann did not see how the personal impact of the historical Jesus, how the impact of his personality, could really be perceptible on the far side of the developmental gulf that Bultmann, at any rate, believed separated him from the Gospels. There had been too much legend formation, churchly adaptation, and so forth. Instead, Bultmann proposed the real locus of redemptive power is the proclamation, the kerygma, that arose among Jesus' followers in the aftermath of his death, a proclamation whose relationship to the pre-Easter Jesus, for Bultmann, is irreducibly obscure. God's saving action is known now in the impact of the kerygma on the self-understanding of its hearers. And the effect is remarkably rich despite changes in terminology. Basically, the believer is set free from dependence on the world and finds courage to face the future. Now, the historical, the long-term importance of this move was not, in retrospect, the reduced role of the historical Jesus. Because Ritchell's own students turned back decisively to the concerns of Hermann and and Hermann, seeking with less naivete and more sophisticated hermeneutics to ground the charisma in the proclamation and self-presentation of Jesus. That's the generation of hans Skazemann and Gundertbornkam and 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 and, 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 so, and so, such folk. Um. The really important thing was the role Bultmann ascribed to proclamation, to language, proclamatory discourse in the mediation of redemptive power. Even when the historical Jesus came back after World War II in the so-called Second Quest, he figured as the sort of authorizing ground of a saving proclamation, a call to to, faith, to stand in the world by faith, not as the human personality through which this saving power of God makes itself felt. Well, this had many implications. It, it um, made hermeneutics even more important to Protestant theology than it had been before, um, in, uh, moving away from the importance of Kantian ethics and psychology of religion on the original Richlands. For my history what was particularly important was the way in which boltman's move this move to focus on proclamation intersected with the um new wave of luther study that that erupted after world war one this was partly because they found early manuscripts of luther that had not been known since the reformation they found the manuscript of his lectures on romans in the vatican library actually some some (laughs) pillaging papist had carried it off um the um, um and perhaps not surprisingly that research was pioneered by students of a ritual student called Hall who was a less monumental and less well known but also a less shallow historian of doctrine than Harnack Luther appeared in this new rendering that came um, was influenced by, by uh, the, the Richlians, for sure. Um, Hermann's book, The Communion of the Christian with God, is intended subtitled According to Luther's Understanding. So it's a it's meant to be a... It's it's a claiming of Luther for um, um, Richlian modernism, is what it really is. It's a very polemical book underneath the surface. Um, the Richlians, I think, invented the strategy of modernist Protestants presenting themselves as the true heirs of the Reformers and their more conservative opponents as the Catholics. Um, In this new rendering, Luther appeared as the master theologian of the saving word, an intuitively hermeneutical thinker who liberated Christianity from Catholic mysticism and dogmatism through his Reformation discovery, that Christian salvation simply is faith. Not belief, but the impact of our con- on our consciousness of a word of pure promise, pure forgiveness. Now, despite my Yale education, where I don't think any of my teachers had a Boltmanian bone in their bodies, um, I had been immersed in the sort of theological culture of this post Richly and post um uh, paradigm since my seminary days, there is a an abiding Boltmanian thread in Jensen's work, though in recent years you don't see it as much underneath the um, sort of Bart Hegel Greek fathers Alliance um, <laughs> which scholars will doubtless be sorting out for decades to come. Um, the New Testament instruction I received at Gettysburg. Um, was essentially post-Bultmanian, that is to say the the second generation of Bultmann students, uh, the generation of Bultmann students. And it really proceeded from the premise that the post-Bultmanians were the Lutherans who, not surprisingly, had definitively cracked the modern hermeneutical problem. So we were taught, I was taught to think this was a kind of permanent thing. The problem had been solved. It's always been ironic to me that I went to seminary in the year that Child's um, um, introduction of the Old Testament Scripture was published and started at Yale the year that The Nature of Doctrine by George Lindbeck was published. And so this this very confident um, 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 post-Bultmanian synthesis that I was taught was just about to fall apart, but no one knew it at the time, except maybe Hans Frey. Um, the, um, and the American Lutheran theologian, whose work loomed largest alongside Jensens, and probably had more impact on the life of the church than Jensens, was a pure and profound represent- representative of the ritual Boltmann succession, though he would have probably preferred to start the genealogy with Boltmann. And I'm talking about the late Gerhard Ferda, who you may or may not have encountered. They've encountered him at Trinity. Uh, Trinity has a, in its history, a, a sort of episcopalian ferdianism that created much and still creates much conflict. There are Trinity graduates who know what a real Lutheran, Anglican Trinity graduates who know what a real Lutheran is, and they know Yego isn't one. Um, the. Um, it, I came to believe that the fruit of this theological heritage lay before me in the life of my denomination. Um, I mean, I'm not so stupid as to think that history is produced just by ideas, but this, this was Lutheran's, after all, so that in a day when people really did teach theology in the seminary, so there was some impact. Um, and in what I came to identify as the Christological poverty Of American Protestantism and its Lutheran form, there had occurred essentially a displacement of the soteriological center of gravity from Christ's person to the event of the word of promise. Justification was widely understood as taking place by what Paul Henry has called verbal divine fiat. The soteriological heavy lifting was not accomplished in Christology, but rather by way of a law of gospel distinction. What saves um, two or three generations of Lutheran pastors in this country were taught is a particular kind of discourse. That's really what saves a particular kind of discourse, promising in distinction from an to law. The role of Christ was somehow to make possible the utterance of pure promise. Because of Christ, somehow, it is possible to proclaim without qualification, you are forgiven. In salvation, just was the hearing of this word. It was the impact of this word, breaking through both the pretension and the despair of our sort of ingrained and genetically encoded legalism. In most versions of this kind of Lutheran theology, Jesus' role is to disclose God's acceptance of sinners and thus authorize the discourse of promise. That's, you all may recognize this in the form of Jesus um, uh, disclosed uh, um, God's inclusivity. And authorized the um, violation of all boundaries. Um, they, um, same paradigm. Um, you hear that more in the, in the among Lutherans now too, actually. Um, God's in the most profound versions of this approach, as like in Garfuda, God's self-identification with one who was crucified under the law is the ultimate disclosure of God's rejection of legalism. Perhaps his repudiation of law as such. In the crucified Jesus, then, the word of promise was foundationally uttered. In any case, the strangeness of Jesus' behavior, his subversive parables, the contradiction of a crucified Messiah, were all read as elements of an acted-out assault on the whole mindset of works-righteousness. In this way, Jesus' ministry and cross authorize and initiate the proclamation of pure promise, the saving unlaw. But now notice, this discourse of promise which Christ authorizes is not as such a discourse about him. You are forgiven is not a message about Jesus Christ. However much it may be authorized by Christ, and uh, illustrated by Christ's story. So it isn't that the preaching based on this theology doesn't talk about Christ. The issue is Christ's role. When Christ's role is essentially to make a dramatic point about God's negation of legalism and his acceptance of the unacceptable people, then that will be what preaching turns out to be about. And that's what I found as I looked around and listened to the preaching of my denomination. And it seemed like it was a lot the same other places. Um, Christ, on these terms, will figure in preaching as the authorization of the promise and the supreme illustration of God's rejection of legalism. But he is not the one whom the preaching sets forth. I began to sort of, um, you know, count up how many sermons I ever heard that were actually about Christ. And it turned out to be really embarrassingly few. I discovered that the story, you know, at the beginning of the sermon um, actually served to move from the gospel lesson, um, from the particular figure of Jesus, to some value or um, experience or something that then became the real topic of the sermon. Well, this law gospel emphasis I've been describing is probably, it may be typically Lutheran. But the displacement of the soteriological center of gravity to, from Christ's person to something disclosed by Christ seemed to me well nigh universal in contemporary North American mainline Protestantism, as far as I could tell. And it's matched, in a way, by a strand of evangelicalism for which Christ's past work of paying the price for our sins makes it possible for us to enjoy an essentially Christless religiosity of inward feeling and outward activism in the present. In neither case is salvation, so to speak, contained in Christ's person to be found only in him. The second generation... um, Let me do this paragraph. When I speak of Christ's person as the locus of salvation, I'm not setting incarnation against cross or an abstract doctrine of hypostatic union against the gospel narrative. On the contrary, it is the person precisely as the subject of that story, the Son of God who did and said and suffered those things for our sake, in whom salvation is to be found. What I want to avoid... and and that's an agenda item in the book, um, is is to, I want to avoid any notion that salvation is an outcome or product of Christ's doing and suffering which is somehow separable from the crucified and risen Christ himself in which we could participate apart from his living presence. Instead of saying that Christ acted and suffered in the past so that we might experience salvation now, I think it's better to say that Christ lived and died and rose again so that communion with him would be our salvation. The second-generation Lutheran theologian Martin Chemnitz, in his great work on the two natures in Christ, wrote that he and his reformed adversaries agreed, and I'm quoting, that the power, grace, efficacy, merits, and blessings of Christ are not communicated to believers outside of or without his person as if he himself were not present. The adversaries also admit that it is necessary, above all things, that Christ himself be given to us, that he become ours, that he be present with us and joined to us, so that from him and in him and through him we might be filled with all the fullness of God. I find that an interesting quote because of its ecumenicity in a volume that's not really very ecumenical. It's an extended polemic against um, Uh, or at least it contains extended polemics against reformed Christology. But here, Chemnitz thought he and his adversaries were one. So in recovering that ecumenical agreement, um, in which I think both were one with the fathers and at least some of the scholastics, Aquinas in particular, is one of the main goals of the apostolic faith, as I hope will be evident to those of you who read it. The stage is set in the second chapter of part one, about the centrality of Jesus of Nazareth. It unites, this theme unites the Trinitarian and Christological chapters in part one with the chapters on church, gospel, sacraments, and new life in part two. And determination to follow through on this point probably also provides whatever unity that final eschatological chapter of the book may possess, which I'm willing to say is a questional. In my judgment, Kimnitz's statement that it is necessary above all things that Christ himself be given to us contains the only hopeful program for the renewal of the church. As I look at the apostolic faith now, the most I would claim is that it makes some progress towards recovering the grammar of the sort of preaching and teaching and liturgy and piety which such a renewal would, would require. I'm much less satisfied with what I've been able to say about Christ according to that grammar, um, and I hope yet to do better. There's much, much to do to find the way to a lively proclamation of Christ that would, that would follow through on that ecumenical consensus that Chemnitz noted. Um, Professor Radner observes in his Leviticus commentary that Jesus is a thinner figure in contemporary understanding, than he was for Origen and the other fathers, because for whom he was interpreted by the rich details of the Old Testament, of the Scriptures. As I've put it recently to students at Trinity, the fathers could talk about Jesus all day long and never get bored in the slightest, because the intricately complex and various Christological witness of the whole canon gave them an opening to the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in him. Um, another um, diminishment has to do with the historicism that it affects our reading of the synoptic Gospels, isolating them from John and isolating both from the Christological doctrine of the Church. In the apostolic faith, I commend St. Cyril for reading the Gospels in the light of the Nicene Creed and in the big picture Christological texts of the New Testament, such as Prologue of John and Philippians 2 and so forth. Cyril insisted that the one ascriptive subject of everything said of Jesus in the Gospels, whether human things or divine things, is the second person of the Trinity, the God Logos, who is eternally with the Father. But neither Cyril nor the tradition after him really fully carried through the project of reading the Synoptic Gospels precisely in their narrative particularity as the story of God the Son coming down from heaven for our salvation. And what we know today about the literary and theological distinctiveness of the, of the Gospels, the individual Gospels, is really an opportunity. Well, I'll stop there. Um, an opportunity that historical critical study provides us, but only a fully theological hermeneutic can exploit. Well, I'll stop there. There are many, many things that could be said, but I'm running out, I've run out of time.